Welcome back to the Former IPLJ Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Ho. On this week's episode, we talked to Fabio Bertoni, the general counsel for the New Yorker magazine. We discussed moving from a big law firm to an in-house counsel of a major publication, the process of pre-publication review, and how a lawyer strikes the intricate balance between what is legal and journalistically ethical. Hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Former PLJ Podcast. I'm your online editor, Patrick Ho. Today I'm joined by the Today I'm joined by the General Counsel of the New Yorker, Fabio Bertoni. Prior to working at the New Yorker, Fabio was an assistant general counsel at the HarperCollins Publisher, where he conducted pre-publication review of nonfiction books and handled legal issues for their children's division. Prior to that, Fabio was also vice president and deputy general counsel for ALM Media, and he also and he began his legal career at the firm of Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed. So thank you for joining me today. Yeah, Podcast. So before we talk a little bit about what the GC of a New Yorker does, it seems like you've been really interested in media law. What got you interested in media and pursuing a legal field in that area? So I was a journalist before going to law school. I went to Hunter College undergrad and interned at a few news outlets. There was a press agency out of the UN. Um, I wrote for a couple of neighborhood newspapers, did some freelancing for the New York Observer, this was uh, uh, almost 30 years ago. And then, you know, pre-Jared Kushner. Um, <laughs> and and then I got a job working at WNYC Radio, where I was I interned. And then uh, I, I uh, reported a couple of pieces for Morning Edition. And then did some other things there. And then was a assistant producer for a talk show that was just starting up, which was on the media. Um, it was the, the first incarnation of it, not the current outstanding Brooke Gladstone version. When it was still with Brian Lair? It, Brian Lair was a was a temporary host. He would fill in while we were looking for a permanent host. We were auditioning a bunch of hosts, ultimately settled on a guy named Alex Jones, but not that Alex Jones, <laughs> a, a different Alex Jones, who was, who was great. And then I decided to apply to uh, journalism school. So I applied to the Columbia Journalism School. And while I was applying to the J School, I noticed that they had a dual degree with the law school, and I thought that would be interesting just as a journalist to, to have a legal background. I didn't really think I would get into law school, and I applied sort of last minute, but then shockingly I got in, and like a lot of things in my life, I realized, oh, I better go. And so, <laughs> so I went to law school, and I ended up liking law school a lot, more than I expected to, maybe in part because I sort of had an outsider's perspective. I was... I was I felt like I was a reporter observing law school rather than being a lawyer or learning to be a lawyer. But I, I ended up liking it a lot. And when I finished the, the uh, program, I got a job at Hughes, Herbert & Reed, and which, which I loved. And I got great training. And I worked on a, some really interesting worked on a Nazi stolen painting case, got to do depositions as a second year associate, which was rare at the time. And I just uh, realized I, I liked the law, although I knew that I wanted to combine it with my journalism background. So so uh, work towards a, a in-house job at a media company. And how does one move from big law into an in-house job? It's not easy. It takes persistence and it takes building a business case for yourself, to put it in annoying terms, in the sense that you have to... You know, you have to have show a demonstrated commitment to the to the field, right? So, you know, in-house uh, companies who are hiring in-house counsel, 
they want to hire someone who's capable. They're not law firms hire people with the expectation of training them. Um, that's not so much the case with uh, companies who are hiring in-house counsel. They want you to be able to do what they're expecting you to do right away. That's not to say that you won't learn a lot in an in-house job. I certainly have. I've learned a tremendous amount. But you have to have some demonstrated abilities and skills in applying to in-house jobs. And they're not, frankly, they're not a lot of media in-house jobs in the world. So so it was tough, and, and I just applied to a lot of them. You know, I did have background in journalism and the master's degree in journalism, which, which stood for something, I think, in that process. And also, you know, you start to work with people and, and build a reputation and know lawyers who know lawyers, you know, can, can at least get you in front of people who are making decisions. It's never a situation, at least in my experience, where anybody will give you a job because you know somebody. But somebody will at least meet with you because somebody vouches for you. So it's it's not easy, but it's uh, persistence is is I think rewarding. And as they say, always say in law school, networking is key. Yeah, yeah, ne- networking is really key. And and in my career, membership in bar association committees. I'm a member of the communications law committee for the New York State Bar, um, and that's been really helpful because it's a you know the universe of media lawyers is not huge and you really do meet a lot of practitioners who you know not only give you great insight into the practice and help keep you up to date with developments in law but also are are great to network with as general counsel of the new yorker how would you describe your duties your job as general counsel so basically i'm advising the magazine on legal issues my client is the magazine so i read the magazine Prior to publication, I do a pre-pub review of everything we publish in print and virtually everything we publish online, as well as the radio hour and videos that we produce. Um, and so a lot of my time is spent uh, talking with reporters and editors and fact-checkers about pieces that are that are upcoming for publication and, and making sure that they're defensible. What do you mean by defensible? Meaning that if, if there's a complaint, as you know from from taking my class. Truth is an absolute defensive a defamation complaint, but um, you know, truth is sometimes hard to prove, um, but that's always our first. You know, I, w- I want to know that what we're publishing is uh, as, as accurate as we can get it. But then, you know, there's a fairness component too, that, that we've considered various sides, that we've interviewed people who have some relevant uh, take on, on what we're reporting. So, you know, making sure that we've done thorough job as reporters and journalists to present the story. How do you gauge something being properly vetted or what is fair and truthful? So, I mean, that's where experience comes in, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm reading something and, and, you know, part of me is, is just a normal reader asking questions. How do we know this? Um, what are our sources for this? And then, and then thinking, also in terms of legal standard, you know, is this, are we writing about a public figure? Is this, what are our, our privileges here? Are we reporting on, on court documents, say, so we might have a fair report privilege? Are we interviewing, again, both sides of the story? If it's a, if it's a sort of he said, she said story, um, are we getting comment from both sides? Those kinds of questions. At what time during reporters' writing process do you come in and look at their reporting? Do you come in fairly early on or when, when a final draft is completed? So it varies from, 
from all the time. There are often times where, you know, in a, in a complex story, a reporter will come to me early on and say, I'm working on this story, I'm, I'm, uh, this is what I'm planning on doing, or I'm trying to get these documents, can you help me with a FOIA request or, or some other request? I need to get access to a hearing or some court documents that a judge has sealed. Can you help me get those? So it depends. And then there are other, you know, oftentimes, not that critics' pieces don't raise a lot of these issues, but, but oftentimes, you know, a critic, um, the, their process is simply watching the art, um, the, the ballet or the dance or the, or the uh, performance or listening to the music or whatever it is that they're critiquing. And there's not a, necessarily a process of interviews and reporting that they do. And so those generally I see, you know, when they're close to final. But again, if, if you're talking about some artist history of drug abuse, say, um, not uncommon, you know, I might have questions about that and how do we know that and, and it, you know, has it been previously reported? Has the artist discussed it themselves? And, and those kinds of questions. Does your pre-publication review process change with a different medium? Let's say talking about the... New Yorker Radio Hour, they do journalistic pieces as well, or videos that the New Yorker produces? Sure. I mean, it, the, the tricky part of radio is that it's harder to make changes, right? In the, in the text, in the, in the print piece or something that is a text-based piece, it's easy to go in and, and change the language. With, with recorded interviews like this one, you can't simply jump into the interview and, and rearrange the words. You know, that can be trickier where somebody says something that I have a question about. There's there's sometimes not a way to fix it. Sometimes we have to cut it out altogether or or there's some further discussion about how to address any any concerns that I have. Video is different still because, you know, there's always a question about whether the images match the words. So you might have the classic, you know, issues a nightly news story on your local news that is about drug addiction in America and has a shot, a crowd shot of people walking down Fifth Avenue and the voiceover or the on-screen text says, you know, one out of five Americans suffers from drug addiction at some point in their lives. And, and then you have people on screen who are identifiable and then they claim that that, um, that, that identifies them and, and makes a statement about them. Um, so, and that's not apparent if you're just looking at the script for the piece. Um, you need to watch the, watch the piece and, and, and listen to it in combination with the images um, so that uh, to, to judge those kinds of things. So there is, there is a difference that, um, in that case uh, between print and uh, video and audio, although the underlying principles are, are always the same. It's a defamation is a false statement of fact about an identifiable person that damages their reputation. And so they're the same, same issues, but different ways that they arise. How do you balance something that is legal with something that is, let's say, journalistically ethical? You know, I find as a lawyer that my client, especially when you've developed a relationship with your client, that they don't want you to just be a lawyer and and shut the door to other concern. Oftentimes, there are reputational concerns, there are ethical concerns in any, not just in media, but in any any 
company that you're advising. And if you constrict your advice to strictly legal concerns, you're really, in my experience, especially as an in-house counsel, you're not you're not really serving your client fully. So I do constantly have in the back of my mind reputational concerns, ethical concerns. Certainly, we try very hard here at the New Yorker to to have the highest ethical standards in our reporting, and so those are those are always often questions that we that we have and, and we discuss. Um, some of them, you know, with regard to sourcing, with regard to confidentiality for sourcing, with regard to leaks. You know, those those kinds of issues come up all the time. How would you describe your relationship with the reporters reporting the story sometimes? I can see them seeing you as the thing that is blocking them from reporting what they want to report. Sure. And and again, to be an effective lawyer, you can't just say no, right? You mm-hmm. can't just be the obstacle to, to someone. And that's when my journalism background is useful because I understand what the reporters are, are trying to do. I want them to do what they want want to do often. I'm I'm as anxious as they are often to get a story up out and published. That's that's why I'm here. That I I really deeply love journalism. And so my role is to help them do it effectively and legally and defensively and, and not to stop them from doing it. That's not to say that we don't, you know, work on stories and then decide that we we don't we simply can't publish because we don't have the goods but my job is not to not to kill stories it's to find a way to to get good journalism published so you know some of that in in talking and working with journalists is is having a bedside manner that that lets them know that you're on their side and not simply saying no but proposing solutions something i learned early in my career is that whenever you present a problem to someone you always have done the work and the the thinking work to uh, come up with a proposed solution. So you're never just saying, "Here's the problem." You're always you're always offering a proposed solution, or even better, more than one proposed solution to the client. So that's that's what I try to do. I try to figure out ways that that something could get published. Do you think your background as a journalist is also effective in helping you communicate with journalists and helping their stories? Yeah, I think so. I'm not a big fan of legalese. I, I met a lawyer early in my career, I worked with a lawyer who actually spoke. He sounded like a prospectus when he spoke. He <laughs> was, it was almost funny. He, you know, he just, everything was, uh, you know, he, he would actually talk with heretofores and oh. uh, <laughs> here and after and as previously stated, you know, that, that was part of his natural way of speaking. And it was, it, it was a good lawyer, a great guy, but it was just a, a funny. So I don't speak that way. And I think, you know, in my, both in my written and oral communications with people, I try to, to, you know, be the, the strunk and white, uh, clear and to the point and, um, without a lot of Latinate words. You know, that, that clear and directness, I think, often helps. Um, so besides going through an issue for the written text, you also have to look at the illustrations. Where are you looking at when you're looking at the printed art that the New Yorker often prints? Copyright issues that come up in art. You know, do we have a, a license for the, the art that we're uh, publishing virtually in every case? Do we have a license from the artists themselves? Although sometimes, you know, there's a, there's a fair use argument 
they wouldn't have a direct license. But then there, if the the art incorporates other artworks or previous work, then you know there there again is a is a fair use analysis that that I do. And then there is also just the the you know other media concerns that one has about any work, which is defamation or invasion of privacy. Are we are we showing a photo that presents someone in a false light? Are we, you know, the, the case of the people walking down the street, are, are we using a photo to illustrate, you know, one in, in five Americans has drug addiction and we're using, you know, the headshot of Fabio Bertone, you know, maybe that's a, that might be a problem. Um, so, uh, so it's, it's the full panoply of, of media concerns that you have with artwork, but also, uh, copyright issues as well. So we spoke a lot about defamation, and something that I want to kind of talk about is what is the distinction between a private and public figure, and how that goes into defamation. So can you kind of parse that out? Under New York Times v. Sullivan, the the Supreme Court held that public officials have to demonstrate actual malice uh, to be able to to win a libel claim in the in the legal definition of actual malice is um, that the publisher either knew what they were publishing was false or uh, disregarded a high degree of probability that it was false. Um, then later cases extended the, the, that standard um, from public officials who are really government officials, um, any, anyone in government with some discretion. Um, uh, to public figures. Um, and the definition, the, the commonly accepted definition of a public figure is someone who's, who's famous and has inserted themselves into, into a controversy. So they're, they're limited purpose public figures and general purpose public figures um, to split things uh, even more carefully. A general purpose public figure um, would be someone of, of such general fame, lawyers sometimes use as a shorthand, say some people who you would recognize by a single name. So Madonna. Madonna, right? LeBron. Um, th- there's no question who, who you're talking about. Those are, those are general purpose public figures and, and um, are, are widely known. There are other limited purpose public figures who are famous in, in a sort of circumscribed area, and that generally is the area which they themselves have uh, inserted themselves into some public debate. So um, uh, someone who, you know, is is politically active and makes speeches or writes newspaper articles in, say, environmental issues may be a limited purpose public figure about environmental issues, but not necessarily about other issues. Uh, so the actual malice standard would apply um to any claims they brought that discussed their involvement in that in that issue that they were um, active in, um, but outside of that issue, uh, they would be might be treated as a as a private person. And and that the defamation standard for uh, private persons is is a lower standard. It um, depends on state to state, but it can be negligence or gross negligence. In your state, it's the standard is gross negligence. A plaintiff has to show that that a publisher acted without the 
the degree, the standard gross negligence standard, which is that you didn't meet the standard of an ordinarily, ordinarily careful professional journalist. Would you say that, especially with things like social media and the way that people are presenting themselves online, that the there's a blurring of the private figure and even limited purpose public figures today? So it's interesting, and, and that's been a question, because one of the main justifications for applying the actual malice standards to public figures is that people who are famous um, have a greater access to media, right? They, they you know, if, if Madonna has a whole PR uh, machinery that she that's that she can use to get her message out there if she feels like there's been something published about her that was uh, false or incorrect, um, and that was greater historically than normal schmoes like me. I can't really effectively call a press conference. Nobody really is interested in, in hearing what I have to say about any subject. With social media, that line is changing, right? We're all, we all are theoretically publishers. Um, we all have, at least theoretically, the means of getting our, our statements out there. So it is, it is a question about who is a public figure. Courts are still, you know, generally are conservative and are a couple steps behind. And uh, so they still, as I think they should, still apply that sort of classical public figure, uh, limited purpose public figure standard. But there may be, we may be moving towards a universe where that, that uh, distinction is, is blurred. Has social media affected the way journalists can report or your relationship with journalists in their reporting? Yes. I mean, it's, it's tricky because the reactions to a story are so quick on Twitter um, and elsewhere, and the expectation that the publisher will engage with with Twitter or uh, or other social media platforms is so um, overwhelming that it's hard to remove oneself. Um, a lot of our readers come to our stories not through our homepage, like old folks like me. Um, you know, I go look at the homepage of the New York Times and I then click through to stories that I'm interested in. Um, a lot of a lot of our readers come to stories um, because they see them shared on Twitter or Facebook or elsewhere, um, and so they never go through the homepage. So, so it's important to have a presence in in on those platforms um, to get your journalism read. Um, uh, um, you know, there's no not a lot of use to publishing something if nobody reads it. So if you if you um, want people to read things, you sort of have to have a social media presence. Um, but that also means that people react and, and respond to your work with greater immediacy, which is not at all necessarily a negative thing. Back in the day, uh, you had the luxury of, of, you know, you would publish something and then you know, a few days later, you'd start to get maybe letters to the editor or something like that. Now it's immediate. Um, and so, you know, if you've made a mistake, you know about it pretty quickly. But also, uh, journalism can have a, a immediate impact that it uh, is apparent. Getting away from the publishing side, the New Yorker also puts on a festival every fall. What What does being a lawyer for a company paying on a festival, what is that like? So, um, 
I, I review a lot of the venue agreements. We have the, the festival takes place over uh, uh, two days, three days um, at various venues around the city. Um, we have the uh, typical format is um, interviews by New Yorker writers, um, of artists or newsmakers, um, and sometimes their performances. And so, you know, as with any live events, there's a host of agreements, um, the, the venue agreements, the agreements with talent, um, if they're performances, rights agreements. And so I review all of those. Um, it's always a miracle um, every year that it pulls off, they, they pull it off because it's so logistically intense to have multiple uh, events happening simultaneously around the city um, and to keep them going for three days as they do. Um, so I'm always in awe of it. Um, but the legal agreements are, are that the, um, there, there's an intense period uh, in the run-up to the festival of, of getting the agreements all in place. Um, and then post-festival, um, you know, a lot of the uh, events are recorded, and then we um, take portions of them and use them on the New York Radio Hour or or, or videos online. And so again, I, I review those for for content. And in addition to being the general counsel here at the New Yorker, you also teach as an adjunct at Firm Law School. How did that How did that come to you? And do you enjoy it? I love teaching. Teaching. You know, one, it forces me to keep up to date with current developments in the law because I have to know what I'm talking about to my students. But it's also it's also just fun. It's it's you know the way I run my classes. My the value I bring to students is sort of the practitioner's experience. So so I try to get a discussion going in my in my classes, and I often learn as much from those discussions as the students do. So that's. That's always a lot of fun. I, I will sort of fell into it. A, a friend of mine, Bob Feinberg, who's also a professor at Fordham, he had been teaching this class and asked me to co-teach it with him. And so I taught it with him for, for a couple of years. And then he switched to, to teaching during the day in the fall. And I teach at night in the spring. So, so that's there are two sections now. But uh, I've sort of been doing it for 10 years and I love it. And something that I think our listeners would be interested in is how would you compare the work-life balance of big law with in-house counsel? So I think my perspective on big law, I mean, it, I've been out of big law for 15 years. So I think, and I think things have changed in that time. But my experience of big law was that, you know, you were at the firm all the time, but you, and there were often you know, intense periods of work, but the, uh, but the horizons were somewhat longer. Um, in-house, I spend less time in the office, but I'm sort of always on. Um, so I get, I get more calls, you know, at night and, and during the weekend from reporters. And it's often not, you know, some massive thing that I have to do, but they need quick advice on a, on a breaking issue. So the, the, I have somewhat more flexibility in-house to, to do work wherever wherever I am rather than be in a firm uh, for, you know, 2,200 hours a year, whatever it is. But the, there's never a time when I'm not available to my client. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a balance of things. You're always on call. 
I'm always on call. But, you know, the, to be fair, lawyers and law firms are always, always on call as well. It's, it's that uh, the expectation that you would have a final answer at any given moment is, is less. Mm-hmm. I, I often have to make decisions in-house. You often have to make decisions, you know, in the moment based on available information and use your best judgment, whereas at a firm you get to go and research for two weeks often. But you really enjoy that immediacy of in-house. Yeah, I mean that that suits my uh, personality well, and it, it you know may not be ideal for everybody, but it but it certainly suits my personality. I do I, I do like that immediacy. I do like uh, making judgments and and then moving on. Sometimes when things drag on for too long, you know they they get you know it, it feels less efficient. So I'd rather I I do like the immediacy of in-house work. What would you say is the best advice you ever got about law school? About law school? Or about working as yeah. a lawyer? I, I will say some bad advice I got about <laughs> law school, which was when I was in law school, a uh, few people told me, look, if you're interested in ever going in-house, you should really be taking more transactional courses. And when you go to a firm, do you know go on the corporate side, do, do transactional work rather than litigation. Um, because that's companies hire in-house counsel, they they usually want transactional lawyers. For me, you know, coming from the background that I do, I'm naturally more of a litigator. I like telling stories. I like stories with good guys and bad guys. You know, and and uh, and that's much more suited to my strengths than than you know understanding subrogated debentures or or whatever it is that that uh, corporate people work on. And really, was that those skills as a litigator that got me my first job in house and have served me well ever since? You know, a, a lot of what I do is a sort of risk benefit analysis. How likely is this to, to result in litigation? And, and what will we do if we do get sued? Uh, what are our arguments? Those kinds of things. And while I do do transactional work, um, it's not at the level that, that you know, Skadden Arps does yeah. transactional work. So. As a final question that we like to ask all our guests, what was your favorite piece of IP this week? It could be a movie, music, a trademark, a slogan. The, the coffee cup in Game of Thrones. Oh. <laughs> it was at least the most surprising piece of IP this week. I didn't know that they had Starbucks and Westeros. <laughs> Anyways, thank you so much Not for being on our podcast. You were a great guest. And, um, it was a lot of fun. Great. Thank Thanks you so much. The Fordham Intellectual Property Media Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderator is Mark Patterson. Our volume 29 editor-in-chief is Jeffrey Greenwood. Our managing editor is Michael Rivera. Special thanks to Fabio Bertoni for being a great guest on the episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. You can follow us at our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FordhamIPLJ. You can also visit our website at FordhamIPLJ.org for daily content. I'm your online writer, Patrick Poe. Thank you for listening.